Let's start the development chapter. If you go in the PowerPoint slides for this chapter, you're gonna see several videos. I want you to actually read or watch those videos, sorry, uh, when you're reading through the PowerPoint slides. It's best to view the videos if you're doing the PowerPoint presentation. So not just looking at the PowerPoint slides in the kind of edit mode, but playing it as a slideshow. So at the top, you can play as slideshow. If you do that, um, then you can just click on the links and easily play the video uh, instead of having to control click or something weird. I don't know, you'll figure it out. You can always copy and paste it also into your web browser. So um, the start of the development chapter has a quick video that shows the process before birth, so prenatal development. That's the first part of what we would talk about in class. We'd watch that video and then talk about uh, prenatal development. So three phases of prenatal development. Uh, the germinal stage, which is the first two weeks. This is conception, implantation, formation of the placenta. Uh, let's see, the second stage is the embryonic stage. This is two weeks to about two months. This is when all the vital organs and systems get set up in the baby. And then the third stage is the fetal stage. So this is about two months gestation to birth. So when I'm talking about stages and weeks, I'm talking about pregnancy. So this is in utero or prenatal before being born or growth. Uh, fetal stage is the longest stage and this is pretty much everything set up. All the systems are set up at this point and they're just continuing to grow. Okay, so brain cells are multiplying, um, movement starts, the body just continues to grow, right? We go from this really tiny cell basically to, you know, a baby, something that is an actual baby that comes out and it's a fully formed baby. Uh, so fetal stage is the longest, germinal stage, which is the first phase, is the smallest, shortest, and the embryonic is sort of in the middle there. Age of viability is something that we talk about Viability meaning being able to survive outside of the womb. So if you were had if you were pregnant and then the baby was born early, um, if we see around 24 weeks gestation, uh, we consider that pretty much the age of viability. Um, if it's later, so as, as it continues to get longer and longer, closer to the 40 weeks gestation, then of course those the survival rate, let's say, is going to go up. Um, we have seen babies survive at as little as 22 weeks gestation. Um, it's pretty low survival rate at that point, though uh, maybe 10%. I don't know the exact numbers, let's say, to date, but this, of course, is going to be influenced by, you know, medical advancements, uh, things that can be used in a hospital, let's say, to keep this baby alive once it's born, if it's born not fully formed. So sometimes babies are born early for reasons that can be sort of, I don't know, avoided. Um, some of those can be tied to things that we call teratogens. So teratogens are some things in that can cause, things that can cause birth defects, so substances or um, even diseases that the mother might have, uh, things that the mother might do, so drugs, legal, illegal, either one, infections, um, environmental factors, so nutrition, being exposed to radiation or um, some kind of sickness that, we, that would affect the baby. Now, not every sickness would affect the growth of the baby prenatally, but some of them do. Uh, Zika virus is one of those that does affect the development of the baby. 
So some environmental factors in prenatal development are maternal nutrition, maternal drug use. Nutrition can influence how the baby develops. This kind of should make some sense to you. I mean, if somebody is pregnant and they're starving, well, of course, the baby's growth is going to be uh, slower, let's say. That will lead to increased risks of complications in development and also at birth. Uh, Drug use, this shouldn't be anything new to you. Of course, drug use while you're pregnant is something that should be avoided. Uh, That includes tobacco, alcohol, um, prescription drugs. So sometimes we just think of recreational drugs, though that's not really the case. I mean, it's smoking leads to um, early birth or low birth weight. So things that maybe you don't think are that big of a deal. Also, drinking should be avoided. I mean, that can affect the growth of a child. Uh, and we don't know. Everybody is different. So some some people maybe can drink their whole pregnancy like fish um, and nothing be wrong with their child. Uh, some people can drink just moderately and have a baby born with fetal alcohol syndrome. I mean, you just don't know as individuals how doing these things are going to affect your individual child. Uh, That's my dog whining in the background if you're wondering what that weird whining sound is. It's not a child, it's a dog. Uh, She wants a treat. All right, uh, environmental factors. Also, maternal illness. So rubella, syphilis, mumps, herpes, AIDS... Uh, the flu, Zika, all these things can affect the development of a baby, a prenatal baby that's developing. Health care, they always want you to get proper health care. There are certain vitamins and things that if you're pregnant, you should be taking or even before you're pregnant, like folic acid. Um, So we want to look at those things too. I'm going to take one second to try to give my dog a treat, and maybe that'll stop her from whining. So I'll finish this one, and I'll start back up um, with the next little episode with talking about attachment. Let's move on to talk about attachment. So early emotional development. Um, Attachment is considered a close emotional bond between an infant and a caregiver, When we study this, generally it's been in the past where the mom is usually the primary caregiver. So a lot of the early studies, you'll see that it's almost always the mom that's in there. Um, You'll watch some videos in this chapter, a video on attachment specifically, and you'll see it's, it's a mom. So no offense to any dads or future dads out there, um, just that that's kind of the way it was studied. Um, but it could be to anybody who is the primary caregiver. This could be a dad. This could be a, a grandparent. Okay. If I say mom, I do not mean to offend anybody. I'm just a mom. So sometimes my immediate go-to is to just say attachment to mothers. Okay. Uh, if we look at why, so why do babies develop these special attachments to their mothers or primary caregiver, Um, the behaviorist perspective is going to put on a, you know, conditioning explanation for this. So reinforcing. So they're going to say, well, baby attaches to its its mother because, I guess I shouldn't say it's, his or her mother, (laughs) because of the reinforcing act of being fed. So I am positively reinforcing the baby to want to be near me and have this feeling towards me because I'm the one that feeds the baby. I'm reinforcing you wanting to be near me because you want food and I give it to you. Now Freud will say something different. Freud's going to say that infants become attached to the person that provides oral satisfaction. So babies are born knowing how to suck. I have pictures of my kids, both of them, um, sonogram pictures of them both 
sucking their thumb while I was pregnant. So babies sort of naturally suck their thumb and get this oral satisfaction if we think about it from Freud's perspective. Um, Freud says, well, the mom is usually the one feeding the baby, therefore the mom is the one that's satisfying this oral satisfaction, and that's why um, a baby will attach to its mother. So I usually ask at this point in class, um, what do you think about that, right? Is attachment simply related to the satisfaction of the need for food? We know that babies need food. So are babies simply going to attach to whoever or whatever feeds them? So whatever feeds me or whoever feeds me is the person that I want to be with the most or that I have these like strong emotional feelings for. Is that feeding the only thing that develops that? All right, I want you to um, think about that question, first of all, and then I want you to watch the video that's in um, the PowerPoint slides. It's called, I have think I just listed it as the Harlow video. Um, so I want you to watch the video on Harlow and pay attention to the behaviors and what happens there. Okay, hopefully you watched the Harlow video now with the monkey. Um, the monkey, right, always goes to the cloth mother for comfort, let's say. So we call this contact comfort. If it was that they we attach purely based on food for whatever reason, <clears throat> whether it's Freud's idea um, or anybody's idea, if it's only to do with food, well, then the attachment should go to the mother that fed them, regardless of how comfortable they were. Um, that's not what we see. We see that monkeys will go to the cloth mother, um, clearly indicating that there's something else going on. It's not just who feeds me, that's the person I attach to or love or have this bond with. Uh, since this little monkey goes to the cloth mom every time, regardless of if it's the one feeding or not, um, and spends most of its time during the day on that mom, um, that shows us that something else is at play here, and we call that contact comfort. Okay, uh, John Bowlby has an alternate explanation of attachment. Uh, this is more, let's say, biologically based or even something more along the lines of Darwinism, that infants are programmed naturally um, without learning to be cute, let's say, smile, to want to, for you as an adult, to want to take care of. So infants are biologically programmed to emit behaviors that trigger affection, protection, responses from adults. Um, and on the flip side of that, that adults are also programmed to respond to those behaviors. So we are, as adults, programmed to um, want to take care of or at least help or protect uh, babies, and babies are programmed to sort of trigger that affection in us. <clears throat> We see, we need, we're going to talk about a famous experiment in a minute. So to understand that a little bit, we just need to touch on uh, attachment and separation anxiety. I'm sure you've probably heard of separation anxiety before. Um, generally, it's sort of this distress that kids show, um, usually around, well, it can be anywhere. I'm eight months old. Um, it usually peaks somewhere around 14 months old, so a little bit over a year, where a child has this preference for a person and doesn't want to be separated from them. So you start to see some emotional distress when they're separated from the person or people that they have this special attachment to. If we're talking about 
a mom, um, then you may have seen this, experienced it yourself in some way, done this yourself, if you can remember back, um, that, you know, maybe the mom is like going off to work and you're home with, I don't know, a babysitter or a grandmother and the baby is crying because you're leaving, like trying to grab onto your leg, like, don't leave me. Um, this is what we call separation anxiety. It is pretty typical. It's not something that's odd behavior or abnormal behavior in any way. Um, it's fairly typical and it can definitely vary, right? I mean, if we're talking about um, a child that's used to being um, in daycare, let's say, from infancy, well, they may not experience such a profound display of it. They may still experience it, um, but it might not be as bad as a child who's been at home with the mom as a caregiver for a year, and then all of a sudden the mom has to leave for something. So playing off of that idea of what this separation anxiety looks like, uh, Mary Ainsworth did famous experiments on attachment. Uh, there are two main categories of attachment, and then there are some subcategories under the insecure. So first is secure attachment. Uh, this is when infants use the caregiver as a secure base to explore the environment. Um, caregiver is sensitive to baby signals, consistently meets their needs. <clears throat> this is what we saw pretty much in the Harlow video, um, that the Harlow monkey went to the cloth mother for comfort and then started to even come off and threaten that little weird robot machine, um, but still staying close to the cloth mom. So the mom is like a secure base um, that allows them to like, oh, you're there. Okay, I feel a little bit more secure. Now I can keep exploring. Uh, insecure attachment is when infants either avoid the caregiver or are sort of ambivalent, don't really care either way if you're there or not, um, overly upset sometimes by minor separations, uh, fear strangers. There's a range here. So we're going to talk about um, some different subcategories that are going to go off of insecure. So there's secure, and then there's insecure with some subcategories under it. Um, we see a variety of different parenting styles with insecure. With secure, we see uh, a caregiver that's sensitive to a baby's needs. You know, your baby's crying, well, within a reasonable amount of time, you're trying to address the crying, pick up the baby and figure out what's wrong, you know, feed or change, trying to figure out why is this baby crying. Um, that would be secure attachment. In insecure attachment, we see that those needs aren't being met, at least not, sometimes not at all, if we're talking about extreme situations, um, or just not consistently being met, <clears throat> or just taking, you know, like a really long time to meet them can also be considered insecure. So the experiment that Ainsworth did is called the strange situation strange situation. Um, it's uh, done in a lab and there's a video so you can watch the video that's in the PowerPoints. It's um, an observational measure of infant attachment. So there's sort of that two-way mirror in a, in a room and the infant and parent um, move through a series of introductions and separations and reunions and there's a stranger that's in there too and it's all evaluated to determine what sort of attachment style is there between the child and the parent. Uh, so it starts with a mom and, and baby in a room. It's an experimental room, but it's kind of set up like I don't know, a little sitting area. Um, there's toys around um, and the babe, mom's kind of there. The baby explores and then the stranger enters um, and then 
the mom leaves, which is considered the first separation. Um, and then the stranger tries to kind of calm down the baby and see what happens. Um, and then the mom comes back. Now, when the mom comes back, that's sort of the part that we're interested in looking at. When the mom, what happens when the mom leaves? Is the baby upset? Well, if the baby's crying and the baby's upset, well, what happens when the mom comes back? Does that uh, immediately calm the baby down? Has the baby not even cared that the mom has left? Um, is the child kind of whining and wanting the mom, but then pushing her away? So that's what we're going to look at during the reunion. So they also do a, a separate, second separation episode um, where the mom leaves the baby again alone and then the stranger enters and tries to kind of calm the baby down um, and then the mom comes back in again. You'll see this as an actual experiment. So there are sort of set time limits, but they are not followed perfectly and that is simply so that there's not too much distress caused to the child. Also, if you're a parent or someday you might see if you are a parent, if we're talking about three minutes of your child screaming and crying and upset, it doesn't seem like it's a long time to say, oh, it's only three minutes, but when it's your child and you're sitting there watching them crying and visibly upset for three minutes, it feels like a long time. So we don't want to stress the baby out too much. All right, so when we look at this, if we see in this strange situation test, if we see a secure baby, what's going to happen is, you know, the baby's going to be upset when the mom leaves, um, not very interested in the stranger when the stranger tries to comfort the baby because it's a stranger, right? I don't know you. Um, and then when the mom comes back in, you know, the baby's kind of fairly quickly calmed down by the mom's return and then may start to explore again, kind of using the mom as a secure base, just like we saw with the Harlow video. Now, if it's an insecure baby, we see a, a few different types, and these names have changed a little bit over the years. So we have an avoidant um, baby, which shows sort of insecurity with the mom. Uh, this baby is simply what it says, avoidant. Um, they probably get in there and prefer to play with the stranger instead of the mom, right? They might go in and run right over to the stranger who's trying to be nice to them and, and play. Um, usually the parenting style for this type of child is a, a parent who's not really very available or is rejecting normally uh, at home. Right, like if you the baby keeps coming up and wanting to, I don't know, sit on the parent's lap, well, the parent might be like, no, no, I'm too busy, and, and push the child away. Um, so in the strange situation, we see little interaction with the mom. Uh, they don't really care very much when the mom leaves. There's not that sort of separation anxiety. Um, don't really care when the mom comes back, even, um, or if they do establish some sort of connection it's it's kind of I don't know let's say fake or they're like okay okay but they're not really making eye contact or really interacting with the parent uh, another one we have is ambivalent um, sometimes called anxious resistant this is when the child is clingy to the mom and then really resistant to the mom. Sometimes we see kids do things like this when they're tired, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is not a tired child. This is a reaction. So clinging, kind of holding on to you, but then also pushing away at the same time. So almost like they don't know what they want. Like they want to be comforted, but they don't really want you to comfort them. So it's kind of like holding on to you, and, but also pushing away at the same time. So in the strange situation, we'll see this child not really exploring the room, um, really holding on to the mom and, and not really wanting to let her go, um, crying, you know, sort of excessively when there's that separation. And then when the mom returns, uh, they're not very interested, right? There's the, you might 
have a child that's not willing to be comforted, even though they're crying. So it seems like they want to be comforted and they probably do. But when you try to comfort them, they're not interested in, in receiving that comfort. Uh, the parenting style for this is usually inconsistently available um, and not very affectionate parenting. Uh, the last one under the insecure baby types is disorganized babies. <clears throat> disorganized or disoriented. Usually these kids are coming from neglect or physical abuse households. Okay, so in the strange situation, they're confused, they're scared, they don't know how to act. Um, and if you think of this from a common sense sort of standpoint, um, if you are in a home where you are ignored or physically abused, well, you don't know what's going to trigger that. Um, so you don't know what to do or what not to do to get avoid getting hit. Um, and we see the same behavior in the strange situation. So once they're in the lab, they have the same feeling. They're confused. They're scared. They don't know how to react, how to act in the situation um, because they don't know, am I going to get hit if I do something um, or if I don't do something? So they usually appear kind of dazed and confused, um, not sure what to do in the strange situation. Uh, so why do we study this early emotional attachment with children? Uh, one reason is that uh, the idea is that children develop an idea or a working model about how close relationships work based on these attachment experiences in childhood. So if I learn that you know love is conditional or love is or that kind of feeling of love um, is to be not very affectionate. Okay, so if I grow up with an attachment style that's, or a parenting style that's not very affectionate in the home, well, maybe that's what I learn love is supposed to look like. So when I go, when I grow up and I get into an adult relationship, I'm not a very affectionate person, which maybe to my partner makes me look like I don't care about them or love them, which of course can cause issues in a relationship. Um, it's not really anyone's fault. It's just that if you've grown up like this, um, that's what you think love looks like. This also can explain why we see people getting into abusive relationships over and over again, if you, especially if you grow up in an abusive household. So if you grow up in an abusive household, you may think, well, that's what love is. Um, you know, somebody doesn't love me unless they're trying to hurt me or hit me. And therefore, you end up looking for relationships like that. So looking for, not that anyone really wants to get hit, but that that's what you think love is or affection is and you may unconsciously look for that. So that's why we study or why it's important to study childhood attachment um, because we think it affects adult behavior and adult attachment or adult relationships. Cognitive development. So transitions and patterns of thinking, reasoning, remembering, and problem solving. We've talked about cognitive psychology before, so you should be pretty familiar with what we're talking about. Uh, Jean Piaget uh, has a theory of development or how we develop cognitively. Uh, his idea is children actively construct their understanding of the world and that they go through four stages of cognitive development to do this. So children construct their understanding of the world. They organize and adapt uh, new experiences that they have. Okay. Uh, organizing experiences, meaning they separate important from less important and connect ideas together. Uh, think about when we talked about um, 
spreading activation of the semantic network, right? Kind of organizing things and then connecting ideas together and also adapting thinking thinking of those ideas or concepts. Um, new ideas, so new things you're exposed to, are adapted in one of two ways, either through assimilation or through accommodation. In assimilation, we incorporate new information into our existing knowledge. So we already know something and we just assimilate that new thing into it. I usually use the example of that you have a cat at home and you're like, oh, I have a kitty, this is my kitty, and it's got you know a long tail and fluffy and it's soft and it has four legs and you've been exposed to it. Right? You live there and since you're a baby, your family's telling you that's our cat. Um, and so then if you see a new thing, you look out the window and you see a squirrel running around and you start calling it a cat. Um, that's what you think it is because you're just assimilating that knowledge. You're incorporating the new information that you have, this new thing that you're seeing, which we would call a squirrel. Um, you're assimilating it into, hmm, what's the closest thing I know that kind of looks like that? Oh, a cat. That thing must be a cat when in reality it's a squirrel. Now, if you were able to recognize, no, this thing is different, or someone tells you, no, this thing is different, this is a squirrel, not a cat, we would say that's accommodation. So accommodation is adjusting to new information, uh, changing your existing schema to include something new, a new category. So if I have a schema of a cat and I look at a squirrel, if I assimilate, I stick it in with the cat category. If I accommodate, I make this sort of new schema of this thing is a squirrel, it's different than a cat. Okay, so that's assimilation and accommodation. Piaget has four stages of cognitive development. Sensory motor, which is about birth to two years pre-operational, which is about two to seven years of age, concrete operational, it's about ages seven to 11, and formal operational, which is about 11 years old to adulthood. Um, each of these stages consists of specific or distinct ways of thinking and different ways of understanding the world. In sensory motor, this is birth to about two years old, Remember, these are statistical ages, so in individuals we can see differences. But statistically speaking, somewhere from birth to about two years old, uh, that's called sensory motor. Infants construct an understanding of the world uh, through use of their senses. Okay, so seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. Um, and they start to progress from reflexive things into sort of symbolic understanding objects. One of the things we talk about in this stage is the difference between understanding that objects exist when they're out of sight. Sight is senses. Um, if they exist, when if we recognize or a child recognizes that they exist, even if it's not visible, then we call that object permanence. We say that they have mastered the concept of object permanence. An example of object permanence would be playing a game of peekaboo, let's say. Um, if I hide my face behind a blanket and then put it down and, and a child seems surprised, well, that surprise is probably because they think it's, I don't know, magic that's going on. You disappeared. I couldn't see you, so you were gone. And then all of a sudden, you appeared out of nowhere. Um, so if a child seems to be really surprised by the fact that you're still there behind the sheet that you're holding up in front of your face, that would be an indication that they have not mastered object permanence. Um, however, if they are still looking for an object that you've hidden behind your back, let's say, 
that would show that they have um, developed this understanding of object permanence. Generally, we see mastery of this concept about one and a one one and a half years old. However, it's hard to say that for sure. There are signs of this being understood even earlier, four to eight months earlier. Um, it's hard to say for sure because it's hard to test, right? It's hard to, to see if a baby who can't talk and can't do much, uh, if they are looking for something else. We can do some of these things with eye tracking to make assumptions, but it's hard. They don't talk, right? So I can't just say, are you looking for something? I can't ask questions and get an answer. I have to just go with what I see. All right, the second stage of cognitive development from Piaget is called pre-operational. This is about ages two to seven. Um, Children continue with their symbolic thinking and they start to use words, okay? So use words to represent the word, the world, sorry. Um, So if I want a ball, I want to play with a ball, even if the ball is not in front of me, they can say ball uh, to represent what they're looking for or what they want. Uh, One of the things that children in this stage have not mastered is what we call conservation. Conservation is the awareness that physical quantities remain the same, even if I change the way they look or their shape. The most famously used to explain this has to do with these little beakers of water so I can put beaker, two beakers of water or two cups of water that are exactly the same next to each other, fill them up to the exact same level and say to a child, is there the same, do these have the same amount of water? <clears throat> and they'll say yes. Then I can use a taller, skinnier beaker looking glass and pour one of those cups right into the beaker, right in front of them and say, now does it have the same amount of water? And they'll say no if they haven't mastered conservation. So if they haven't mastered it, they'll say no. There's more in the taller beaker. Why do they do this? Well, the line now is higher, right? Something's taller, so it looks like there's more. They neglect to realize, well, it's skinnier, Um, we call this centration, that they focus on one feature. So instead of focusing on the fact that it's skinnier, um, they focus on the fact that it's just taller. Um, This is also something that can help. So if you have a child who has not mastered this idea yet, this can help if you have two kids arguing over who got the bigger piece of cake. Uh, if they're saying, you know, this isn't fair, Jeremy got a bigger piece of cake than I did, you can simply walk over with a knife, cut the piece of cake in half that's in front of them, and they feel better. Why? Well, they think that they now have two pieces of cake, and the other person only has one. Uh, so they feel like they got more. Another flaw in their thinking why they have a problem with centration, or why, sorry, I already talked about centration, why they have a problem with conservation is irreversibility. They don't think about what can I do if I reverse the action. So I watched you pour the cup of water into the thinner glass, um, but they don't think about what would happen if I reverse it, if I pour the water back into the cup Is it at the same line or the same stage? Another flaw in their thinking is egocentrism. So their inability to share another's point of view. Um, This also results in something we call animism, which is the belief that all living things are the same as you. Um, This is why we have kids sometimes talking to inanimate objects or a 
teddy bear falls on the ground and they say, oh no, Mr. Teddy got a boo-boo because he fell. When I fall, it hurts. I get a boo-boo. Mr. Teddy fell, he got a boo-boo. So they put sort of these real life feelings that they have onto these inanimate or just other types of objects. The third stage of cognitive development is concrete operational, ages about 7 to 11. Uh, Children can reason logically now about concrete events, uh, classify different sets of um, objects. Uh, We have a decline in egocentrism now. They master, they understand conservation, they understand you know, the thinking about reversing something. So they have reversibility. Um, They focus on several different features of a problem instead of looking at one thing. This is called decentration. One of their flaws was centration, only looking at the height of the water. This is now in concrete operational. They're not doing that. Uh, They recognize that, yeah, well, it's in a, the height of the water is higher. However, it's in a skinnier beaker now. Uh, They recognize that. Okay, stage four, or the last stage of Piaget's cognitive development, is formal operational. This is about 11 years old to adulthood. Um, We can reason abstractly, idealistically, logical, um, become more systematic problem solvers. So instead of just trying to do something, thinking through it before trying the solutions. And development just continues in this stage from 11 to adulthood. The idea is that the type of thinking doesn't really change, but maybe the degree of it does. We would definitely recognize we're a little bit different thinkers from 11-year-old to adulthood. Um, But the type of thinking itself, the abilities, let's say, don't seem to change. So there are criticisms of Piaget's theory. A big one is that he underestimates abilities of children, that there are subjects, there are studies that have young subjects showing some of the principles that he's talked about in in showing they do understand what object permanence is, let's say, at a much younger age. But like I said before, it's just really hard to study when you're talking about studying things with infants who can't talk. Um, And you just have to rely on what you can see and sort of interpret their behavior. Another thing is uh, cultural differences. So in different cultures, different things are valued. And Piaget says, you know, this stuff is universal. His stages are universal. And the argument against that is that, no, it's not universal. Culture plays a big part here. There are different cultures in the world. They value different things or they behave differently and that's going to influence it. So if there is a culture that um, gives children a lot of independence to go outside and explore, well, maybe they're going to develop understanding uh, in different levels of thinking maybe faster than a culture that's more, let's say, coddling to their children, not letting them explore the environment on their own. Vygotsky's cognitive development ideas uh, or sociocultural theory plays off the criticisms of Piaget's theory a little bit. Um, It emphasizes social interaction and culture as a strong influencer in cognitive development. The main claims here are that cognitive skills have their origins in social relations and culture. So that development is fueled by uh, parents, teachers, other kids, uh, those social interactions. And that cognitive skills are mediated and shaped by language. That private speech helps children 
learn how to solve problems or helps them actually solve the problems. <coughs> it also helps them plan so they're not just doing. Um, so Vygotsky is actually popular in the education field. Uh, Piaget is too, but Vygotsky specifically in the teaching field. Um, he is the one that developed this idea of zone of proximal development. If you end up in my ed psych class at any point, you would definitely learn more, much more about this. Um, but zone of proximal development is what we sort of understand and what we can understand that we maybe just need a little bit more help on. So I have the ability, let's say, to understand something, topics, something about the world, let's say. Um, and then that pairs with what we call scaffolding, um, which is helping you get to those things that you can understand, but you just need a little bit of help that you can't do completely on your own, but you can do with a little bit of help from a teacher or a parent. Major differences between Piaget and Vygotsky's theories um, are that Piaget says cognitive development is fueled by a child's active exploration of the world, where Vygotsky says cognitive development is fueled by social interactions with others, that others help guide the development. Piaget also says that children develop the same way across cultures, uh, and Vygotsky says that, no, that's not true. Development is completely influenced by culture, so it's not the same. Piaget will say that speech is insignificant, like that inner speech where you kind of talk to yourself a little bit um, is just egocentric, childish, it's insignificant, and there's no cognitive use for it. And Vygotsky will say, no, it's actually very helpful for cognitive development and problem solving. There's a <clears throat> really interesting video to watch. It's in the Blackboard slides. It has to do with speech development and critical period, which we say that there are critical periods specifically for speech, that if you don't learn it by this point, um, it will be really hard to learn it. Um, <clears throat> for speech, it's considered to be about age two to puberty, that if you haven't developed speech by then, that it would be really difficult to do so. Uh, this has to do with also nature versus nurture. So the video is in the PowerPoint slides. It's called Jeannie Wiley. I would suggest you look, watch the video, um, think about development. You'll be able to think about development, generally speaking, and speech development as it's a case for speech development. But it should also help you with the previous information we've talked about um, in this chapter. So please go through and read the, or watch that video. It's, it's sad, but it's pretty interesting also. Let's finish up this chapter um, by talking about moral development. Uh, Kohlberg is the name most associated with uh, moral development. He developed a stage theory um, that we go through different stages of moral development depending on how we respond to moral dilemmas. So he was interested in a person's reasoning for their answer to a moral development, not necessarily the actual answer they gave, but the reasoning for that answer. That's what's going to determine the moral thinking, let's say. So he says that people go through a series of levels of moral judgment and that they can be broken into two sub-levels each. You can look at these um, 
They are in the slides. There's a picture that shows them to you, and there's also just sort of the writing on them. So the three main levels are pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. So these are supposed to be the thinking style or the moral development. In the pre-conventional level, there are two stages, punishment orientation and naive reward orientation. Right or wrong in these is determined by, in stage one, what is punished, and in stage two, what is rewarded. So you would only determine what your reasoning for something would be that, well, I think this was right because they got a reward for doing it. Okay. Uh, stage three, which is now under a conventional level, is called the good boy, good girl orientation. Right and wrong are determined by the approval or disapproval of other people. Okay, so this can be a parent, teacher, um, somebody else. They sort of set the what is right or wrong. Uh, you do something as a child and I shake my head like, good job, uh, then that must be right. Or if you go to do something and I shake my head no, then that must be wrong to do. So morally the judgment is, well, my mom said it was wrong, so morally it must be wrong. Stage four of the conventional level is called authority orientation. This is that society's rules or laws determine what is right or wrong. So I think that it is wrong to do something or right to do something based on whatever the rule is. So if I was to see somebody go through a red light, drive through a red light, and then I was asked to judge, was that right or wrong? If I say, well, that was wrong because the law says if it's red, you're supposed to stop. Okay, so that would be stage four under conventional level um, authority orientation. Now, stage five and six are in the third level here, post-conventional level. So five is called social contract orientation. Uh, right or wrong is determined by society's rules, um, which are viewed as sort of flexible. Okay, In authority orientation, the last level, they were pretty rigid. No flexibility. It says... If it's, the light is red, you're supposed to stop. So that's what's right. If we look at social contract orientation, so stage five, um, it's a little bit more valuable. So maybe I can take into account the fact that, well, yes, you're supposed to stop on red. However, the person went through the red light, um, let's say, to because they were trying, they saw a crash ahead and they were trying to get to the crash to help the people in the car and the car was on fire. So if they waited too long, right, you can kind of reason it a little bit. Like it's not an absolute if there's a good reason to break the law. The last one, stage six under post-conventional level, is individual principles and conscious orientation. So right or wrong, is determined by these abstract ethical principles uh, that have to do with equality and justice. So regardless of what the social rules are, what you think is right or wrong, this usually has to do with treating people fairly. So maybe something is wrong to do but because somebody isn't being treated equally, it's right to sort of break a law because of that, okay? Now, one of the most famous 
um, experiments used in in Kohlberg's studies, okay, because he did these studies like in a lab and used different moral dilemmas and then asked people what, you know, what they would do, was this thing right or wrong, and why, and that's where he determined where to put him on those, that scale or those levels of moral judgment or development. One of the most famous ones used is called the Heinz Dilemma. The Heinz Dilemma is, in short, if you look at the slides, I have it written out for you, but in short, um, there's a guy, his wife is going to die from cancer, unless she gets this drug, and he goes to the person that made the drug and said, you know, I really need this drug. My wife's going to die. Um, it cost the guy $200 to make the drug, and he charges $2,000 for it. And Heinz, like, does everything he can to get money, borrows money, and he comes up with $1,000, and he's like, please, like, can you take this? I'll pay you the rest later. Can you just give it to me for cheaper? My wife's going to die. And the druggist says, like, basically, no. You know, I made it. I'm going to charge whatever I want for it. So Heinz ends up breaking into the store and stealing it. Now, that's the dilemma that would be presented. So the question would be, should the husband have done that? Should he have stolen the drug? If we were in a classroom, we would do this. Um, we would talk about this in class and get different opinions because everybody has a little bit different opinion on it. Uh, some people will say, no, he shouldn't have done it because stealing is wrong, right? So if stealing is wrong, um, if the law says you don't do this thing, um, then that's wrong. It's obeyed strictly. Right, And then we would look at that answer and say, well, where does that fall in the stages that Kohlberg presented? Um, that would probably th- fall in authority orientation. Right, That's the rule. You shouldn't steal. And he stole. Therefore, um, it's stage four of the conventional level. If somebody was to say um, something like, well, he shouldn't have stolen it really, but it's a good thing he did because otherwise she would have died and dying is, letting someone die is wrong and ethically wrong and I couldn't live with myself so I'd rather go to jail, but I couldn't, I couldn't stand myself if I just let someone die so I would have had to do it. That would probably be stage six, right? Individual principles or consciousness or the sort of ethical principles that are guiding us. So you can think about what you, how you would answer that question, right? Should he steal it? Um, and then you can kind of play with the questions too. Uh, what if it was a stranger and not his wife? Should he have stolen it? Um, what if it was a drug to save an animal? Should he have stolen it? Um, what your answers, like think about what your answers are and how they change, because sometimes they do change depending on who it is we're talking about. And if you don't like the whole idea of like wife, sometimes people joke with me about the wife. Well, what if you don't like your wife? Uh, we'll change it. Change it to somebody that you care about. What if it was your mom, uh, your dad, your brother, your sister, your child, um, whoever it is in your life that's the person that you care about, change it so it's sort of relative to you, and then make a decision. Would you do this thing? Would you steal the drug to save that person? And why? Like, what is your thought process on that? Like, I'm happy to take whatever the consequences are, but I cannot let this person die. Um, And then look at the stages and see where does that fall? Where does that answer bring you in the stages that Kohlberg lists? It's actually a really fun thing to do in class because a lot of us think that everyone's going to have the same answer as us, and that's really not the case. We see a whole range of people's opinions on this, even in a college classroom. 
So the rest of the slides for this um, chapter, well, a big chunk of the rest of them look like, I'm looking at them, uh, they are Erickson stages. That is actually all that's left, if I'm right, as I click through here. Yeah. So Erickson stages are all that are left here that has to do with personality development. Uh, these also are the stages that are required for the poster. So this is what's required. What's left on the PowerPoints is what's required for the poster anyway. So I'm not going to do a lecture about them. I actually wouldn't have in the regular class either. I would have just had us look over them, talk about it, um, ask for questions and things like that during the poster presentation day. Since we don't have that this time, I have set up a discussion board for everyone that's doing this poster to post and also have asked everybody to look at at least three of them. Um, you can also comment on them. Everything's nice, nice comments, nothing mean. Um, but you can do that to interact with this material. I suggest that you do that because you will have um, <clears throat> test questions on this information, even though I'm not going to talk about it. Um, I'm not going to lecture on it. All right, that's going to conclude chapter four.